up? Welcome to episode 13 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. Lucky 13, even if it doesn't feel like it. Just a couple of episodes ago, I was encouraging everybody to be safe and stay hopeful because of the COVID pandemic. And now the whole world, but particularly the US, has hit face first with another crisis, an enemy it has managed to dodge for centuries, and that is racism. Now, on one side, I feel like I shouldn't get into this and I should just do my thing. But on the other hand, I feel like I can stay silent. It's so ironic that in my last episode, I talked about In the Heat of the Night and its cultural relevance and about the Central Park Five and the issue of overcriminalization of black people. And although I'm no scholar, I feel like going back to those two films, particularly the former, to try to process everything that's going on around us. First, it's important to remember that In the Heat of the Night was released in 1967, right in the middle of civil rights tension, and yet here we are in 2020 and so little has changed. Here you have a film about a black man that is racially profiled, unjustly detained, falsely accused of murder, and outright mistreated solely because of the color of his skin. This occurs in the first 10 minutes or so when Virgil Tips, played by Sidney Poitier, who is waiting for a train to get back home after a visit to his mother. He's seen at the station by a white police officer who immediately and without much questions assumes he is the culprit of a murder. And even though that was fictional 1967, we know this continues to happen to this very day. Now, even after that misunderstanding is cleared, Tips has to deal with the constant dismissals, rebukes and prejudices of most people in town, a town that sees him as a threat. And I found interesting, and I may be filling the blanks a bit here, but Tips was in town visiting his mother, so it makes sense to assume that he could have been born and raised there, or at the very least visited often before, and still the people see him and treat him as someone foreign. He doesn't belong. Obviously, Tips turns out to be an extremely skilled detective, someone that's more than capable, certainly more than the people in town, but still the people see him as inferior. They act surprised when they see him speak with eloquence and they hear him theorize about what happened with the murder as if they'd never thought it would be possible for a black man to be smart, intelligent, or equal. And yet, that's not enough for most of them. They let him do his thing, not because they accept him, but only because it is of benefit to them. It's not that they embrace Virgil Tibbs the man, it's that Virgil Tibbs, the detective, probably might help them solve a murder. One of the big scenes is when Tibbs meets a suspect, a plantation owner, how's that for subtlety, that looks down on him, and he slaps him only to have Tibbs slap him back immediately, much to the surprise of the plantation owner. He wasn't expecting that. Now, the significance of this slaps from a powerful plantation owner to a black stranger uh, and then back, right in the middle of the 1960s, it must have felt so empowering, so surprising. After centuries of racism and discrimination, decades of being relegated to roles of maids and butlers and comic relief, to see a black man on a film fight back, one can deny the impact that such a simple scene must have had with audiences. And yet, not much has changed. 40 plus years later, black people are still abused, racially profiled, overcriminalized, mistreated, dismissed, looked down upon, rebuked, slapped, persecuted, murdered on the streets. And yet, people are surprised when they slap back. 
Now, there is a positive side to the film, and that is the relationship that evolves between Tibbs and the local sheriff Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger. Remember that this is a man that's pretty much using Tibbs to his advantage. He's being pressured to solve a murder, and he acknowledges that this man might be able to help him. But despite his racist leanings, probably a result of an entire life being taught that that is the right or only way, Gillespie does something that few people in the film or real life do. He listens, he steps aside, he watches, and he listens. And in listening, he realizes that maybe the way he's been doing things is not the right way. And that maybe this man that he's been looking down on all the time is not that different from him anymore. The truth is that I wouldn't dare to pretend to understand what it's like to be a black man born and raised in the US. I can't. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, I still live here, so I don't have the understanding, the perspective of how life can be for a black man in the United States. But I can step aside, I can watch, and I can listen. So that's all I ask from anybody, to listen to the people around you, to step aside, watch, and listen, even when there are slaps, especially when there are slaps. So moving on, uh, May just finished, so I like to just leave that behind and talk about the last five films I saw. So let's go. A film from Norway. Norway celebrated their constitution in May 17, which is why I chose this category. Browsing the internet for Norwegian films, I read about this film from 2015 called The Wave, and it ended up being quite a surprise. Set in the village of Geiranger, located within the mountains and fjords of the country, the film follows Christian, played by Christopher Joner, a geologist that is about to move with his family to a bigger city after a job promotion. However, when a landslide threatens to trigger the titular wave, Christian has to race against the clock to warn his former co-workers and then to protect his family. I know the description sounds like the template for most disaster films, which might not seem like a good indicator, but this one really worked. Director Roar Uthaug finds multiple ways to use the typical cliches of the subgenre to his advantage and build a film that's genuinely thrilling and gripping. For the first half of the film, he manages to build up the thread anchored by solid performances from the cast. He focuses on Christian and his family in a way that makes us care about them. But when the time comes, Uthaug also knows how to work around the limited budget to make the inevitable wave feel as tense and nerve-wracking as it can be. Seriously, the way he uses the camera to highlight the urgency of the situation with the dread of the approaching tsunami was masterful. The second half isn't as tense or impactful as the first, but thanks to the latter, I was sufficiently invested in the characters to keep me engaged until the end. This one is on Hulu and it's really worth a watch. A film from the 1001 movies you must see before you die list whose ranking includes the number 5. For this category, I chose 1925's The Eagle, which sits at number 25 on the list. It wasn't my first choice, but after my first pick came up with an error on Prime, I shifted to this one. This is a silent film, and it follows Vladimir Dubrovsky, played by Rudolf Valentino, a disgraced lieutenant of the Russian army that ends up being persecuted for rejecting the advances of a female superior. As a result, he becomes an outlaw by the name of the Black Eagle. When his father ends up dead because of the actions of Kirilla, a ruthless nobleman, Dubrovsky sets out to take revenge but falls for Maka, played by Vilma Banki, the daughter of Kirilla instead. 
for the most part, this was an enjoyable and interesting film. Technically speaking, there are some neat uses of the camera here and there by director Clarence Brown. There is a certain tracking shot that looks pretty great, and the plot manages to be entertaining for the most part. Unfortunately, the film leans more towards the romantic and comedic side instead of focusing on the adventure side that one would expect from the film's title and its plot description. Luckily, the film is not that long, so whatever flaws it might have end up feeling quite breezy, so it might be worth checking out. A film about Muslims or Islam I chose this category because of Ramadan, which ended up in May 23, and ended up watching 2009 London River. This one was suggested by an internet friend, Apex Predator. The film is set immediately after the 2005 London bombings and follows Elizabeth, played by Brenda Blethyn, a protestant widow as she tries to get in touch with her daughter who happens to live in the city. In her efforts, she constantly stumbles upon Usmane, played by Sotiwi Kuyate, I hope I pronounced that correctly, an African Muslim that is also trying to get in touch with his estranged son. Upon finding that their children were not only friends but lovers, both have to deal with underlying prejudices to cope with the events. The premise of two opposite strangers that end up connecting through grief is not new, but I still think there was a good premise here. Unfortunately, the film moves at an extremely low pace, while putting a lot of its chips on the reveal of the fate of the daughter, when it's obvious from the get-go what has happened. The obvious plus is that the performances from Blethin and Kuyate are commendable, both of them are pretty good, but they can only carry the film for so long. A fantasy film for this category, I saw How the Grinch Stole Christmas. For some reason, I had never seen it, but my wife picked it up for the kids the other day, and I ended up watching it. I'm sure most of you know the drill. The Grinch, played by Jim Carrey, wants to ruin Christmas to the residents of Whoville as payback for being bullied and mistreated as a kid. The two obvious advantages here are, number one, the overall set design and special effects are great, and they manage to evoke the essence of Dr. Seuss' book. And number two, Carrie's performance is fun. Moreover, when you consider he's buried underneath a ton of makeup. Unfortunately, as fun as some things in it are, I didn't find enough laughs on the film overall to take it over the hump. Finally, the film can't help but feel manufactured or too mechanic, which is the case with many of Ron Howard's films. And the plot is stretched too thin for almost two hours. As for the kids, they more or less enjoyed it, but they weren't as into it as they've been with other films. A film from the 1940s. For this category, I saw 1940 His Girl Friday. The film follows reporter Hilde Johnson, played by Rosalind Russell, who is about to quit the job to move and get married, but her editor and ex-husband Walter Burns, played by Cary Grant, is determined to keep her close by coaxing her into covering the execution of a murderer. I'll get my main thoughts off my chest quickly, but am I a bit of a sourpuss for having problems with the models in this film? I mean, sure, it's meant to be a screwball comedy, but I've always had issues with films and TV shows where quote-unquote handsome assholes swoop in to take the woman from the quote-unquote bumbling fella. What I mean is that I didn't find the extent to which Burns goes to humiliate Hilde's fiancé, Bruce, to be funny, particularly because he wasn't a bad guy. But we're meant to accept Hilde's blatant dismissal of him because, of course, it's Cary Grant and they're meant for each other, blah blah blah. But to be honest, I just felt like watching two self-centered, self-absorbed assholes. 
The film does have its strengths, all the performances are pretty good, Russell and Grant have great time in between them, and the fast dialogue is witty and entertaining. I still don't know what to think about the subplot of The Prisoner, which felt more peripheral and not that integrated into the main plot, but like I said, my main gripe is that I just didn't connect with the film the way it's supposed to. A film set in a country or place you'd like to visit. I chose this category because of National Tourism Day, which was May 7, and ended up settling for a rewatch of 1997's Life is Beautiful. Set in the wake of World War II, Guido, played by Roberto Benigni, moves to the city of Arezzo in Tuscany in order to make money as a waiter and maybe open his own bookshop later. There he is smitten by Dora, played by Nicoletta Brasi, and the two end up falling in love and getting married. Fast forward a couple of years and they have a little son and Guido already has his home bookstore, but just as Nazis start taking control of Italy. When they end up taken into concentration camps, Guido has to make the effort to protect his young son from the horrors of the camp by trying to pretend everything is a game. I remember seeing this shortly after its release and not being a huge fan of it, but it's one of my wife's favorite films and when I rewatched it with her years ago, I ended up warming to it more. That's also one of the reasons why I chose to rewatch this. It was her birthday early in May, so happy birthday again, Principessa. Life is Beautiful is also set in what is arguably one of our dream tourist destinations, Italy. Granted, the story is not something that should be revisited, but I abide by the film's message while also going back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, and that is that despite the horrors and injustices that might surround us, we can still find beauty in life, whether it's a song, the memory of a loved one, or the innocence of a child. So that's it for episode 13, which marks the end of May. To summarize a bit of what I saw during the month, I ended up watching 17 films in total, which is two more of my monthly goal. If I were to choose a favorite from those, it would probably be Sweet Smell of Success. However, other films like Mother and In the Heat of the Night were pretty good. As for the weakest film I saw during the whole month, that would probably be London River, which I just discussed on this episode. Now that June has started, it's time to ready the table for another challenge, and here are the categories I've chosen for this new month. First, a film with the number 6 in its title, any film that starts with the letters K or L, a film from the 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die list, whose ranking includes the number 6, a film from the 1950s, a horror film, a film about fathers, a film about LGBTQ lifestyles, a film with Marilyn Monroe, a film with a repeated word in its title, a film about friendship, a film with a herb or spice in its title, a film set in Hawaii, a film from the Philippines, a film with the word summer in its title, a film about a meteor. So that would be all. Once again, thanks for listening and for putting up with me during this episode. I hope you all remember to listen. If anybody wants to look me up on Twitter, I'm at TIFCGT, T-H-I-E-F-C-G-T, or TIF12 on Letterboxd. Let me know what you think of the podcast itself or the films I discuss, or if you want to recommend any film from the categories I've set for the next month. Don't forget to like, follow, and share the link. Have an excellent week, everybody. Well, got your ticket? Yeah. Thank you.
Take care. You hear? 